You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for February the 14th, 2020. On this Friday night, we're going to be looking at some recent comments made by, well, not some recent comments, but comments made about two years ago now by John Piper. And they were recently posted on Twitter uh, by Together for the Gospel, T4G, T4G.org. I'm not that familiar too too much. I know it's a conference and things like that. Um, They posted uh, comments that, um, let's just say, have caused a bit of annoyance among some on the internet. Initially, I was going to cover this because I thought that people might have overreacted to the comments made by John Piper. I am I've been pretty vocal in my concerns about John Piper's teaching, and um, I'm going to try and not cover old ground again, stuff that I've covered in old programs before. Uh, I might briefly look upon it, um, but initially, I'll just refer to the quote that I saw that caused concern in me. Uh, the quote is, to, to define saving faith apart from feelings is futile. To define saving faith apart from feelings is futile. That they were that was a comment made by John Piper back in uh, two thousand and eight, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, this was the together for the Gospel T four G conference in two thousand eighteen, and this has kind of been reposted again. And had never come across this message before he, that he preached at this conference. And unfortunately, I listened to it, and it was worse. I just thought it was some of John Piper's sloppiness initially. And I thought, okay, maybe we're making too much out of it. Before I get into uh, the main material, just to give you a quick update, because I have gotten one or two questions over the last few months about what's happening with Megiddo Radio. And some people don't follow the page on Facebook and Twitter, and you don't need to. Um, <laughs> uh, but anyway, what what the case is is this: there will be program. There'll be tonight's program, obviously, Lord willing, all going well and nothing going wrong with uh, the broadcast. But also, there'll be one or two programs. At least, I'm hoping at least one. Um, after next week, there won't be any programs between next week. And about mid-April to late April, and I would just ask, maybe just check the website. I'll put up a date whenever it'll be back. Um, I'm, I haven't even checked when my exams are over. I'm not. I'm probably going to give myself a few days after the exams are finished, um, but we will see. And uh, to be honest, even when I do finish the exams, I'll probably be. I'm doing some research at the moment, for example, on a very interesting um, covenanter and Westminster divine, Alexander Henderson, who is a Scottish covenanter. And um, I might 
do something on him that I have to do for college and I might do that in late April. So I might be able to come back. But we'll see anyway. Late April, may, uh, mid to late April is when the program will be back. So there'll be uh, tonight's program and possibly one or two more programs. Um, the the other two topics, one is on Bethel and there's a clip I want to review, Lord willing, all going well. And there's also something on Roman Catholicism, but that's a bit a bit of a question mark if I'll even get to that one. Um, it might be that there's only the Tuesday night program. I will I will let you know on Tuesday what how things transpire. It kind of depends on other things as well. So that's how things are going. Hopefully that makes it clear. Apologies, it has been a bit um, uh, infrequent, the programs as of late. But again, like I said... Um, when when the program when my programs aren't happening, the world keeps on spinning, and um, I I pray by God's grace that you're getting fed in your local church, and hopefully that you know plug yourself in that way. Um, there look, there's there are fantastic things you can find on sermon audio on various different topics. Um, and if you want recommendations, you can email me miguelfilms at gmail .com. Um, okay, so. Let's get into talking about John Piper. I'm going to play the clip that caused the controversy. Um, hopefully everything's going well by way of uh, the sound. Uh, somebody could let me know in the chat room. That would be wonderful. That if there's the sound is okay in case I'm just talking to myself here and nobody could hear me. I'm going to play this clip from John Piper. This was give you the context and what my initial thoughts were. And um, I'm going to switch over here to this screen. In faith, apart from, to define saving faith, apart from feelings, that's a positive word. I'm using it synonymously with affections or emotions. To define saving faith apart from feelings slash emotions slash affections of glad dependence, thankful trust, fervent admiration, pleased submission, contented resting, thrilled treasuring, eager reverence, heartfelt adoration is futile. You cannot strip those adjectives away. Glad, thankful, fervent, pleased, contented, thrilled, eager, heartfelt. You cannot strip them away from the nouns. Trust, admiration, submission, resting, treasuring, reverence, adoration. You can't strip those affectional adjectives away from the nouns which we try to make face and have anything left except what the devil can do. Or, if you think carefully, you might have some oxymorons left over like unthankful saving faith. But there is no such thing 
Okay, so that was the th- and it caused some annoyance. Um, I initially thought that. Oh, sorry there. Um, wrong button. I initially thought that people might have been overreacting a tiny bit on Twitter. I thought that. Okay, ill-advised clip. My initial thoughts were, this is a bad clip. This sounds like it's horribly out of context. And um, my initial thought was from that, well, he seems to be probably talking about the fruit of saving faith. And in that clip, it's, you know, if somebody took a clip out of my, one of my programs, uh, perhaps it would sound messy as well if it was maybe lacking some important context of another 30 seconds or a minute. It, it might sound really jarring to somebody without me stating, well, what I mean by that is I don't mean this, this, and this. Um, however, when I did listen to the, the full presentation, it was actually worse. and It was actually worse than I initially thought. But from that clip, I was just like, okay, maybe he's talking about out of the out of the fruit it's an unhelpful way by the way of presenting it but we got to be careful what we go at 11 at what we go ah you know because john piper has some serious problems with his teaching we dealt with the whole thing i don't know how long ago it was now um i did a program on his salve you know his final salvation quote-unquote, final salvation by works teaching, that faith alone doesn't, te- doesn't say, you know, doesn't get you into heaven. It, you know, it'll say for initial justification, yes, but not getting into heaven. We've dealt with that before in the program. I even had, uh, we briefly dealt with it with R. Scott Clark, who was graciously on the program at some stage in the past. I don't know how long ago that was, maybe two years ago now, uh, time flies. So if you want to go back and listen to that, I have some severe concerns, to say the least, about John Piper. And when combined with that, when I know about his neonomianism, which is basically legalism, um, and I understand why people gravitate towards this, there is, among some, a fear of lawlessness, antinomianism, so... What happens is we want to stress against antinomianism the the necessary fruit that will be there in saving faith that will be necessarily present. But there's also a danger in when you make that the core rather than the fruit. You make it the root, you bring it into the core of the gospel rather than the the, the root of saving faith, the evidence that saving faith is actually there. There's always dangers in the gospel. There's always a danger. We will go one extreme or the other. We'll go to, towards the legalistic extreme and corrupt the gospel that way, or go to the other extreme, which is a lawless antinomian extreme, and corrupt the gospel that way as well. Antinomianism and legalism very much are twins of each other. Um, I can't remember, there was a book by... Uh, Sinclair Ferguson was talking about the marrow controversy. I read it about a year ago or two years ago, and uh, he was talking about that. It's something that we need to think about. So I understand the appeal of what Piper is saying. It's like you know because you want to go against 
that easy prayerism, that decisionism that a lot of people have raised on. But you, we cannot be reactionary. We must think, well, it sounds like a cliche, I know. Well, what does the Bible say? We can't just kind of go, well, here's an error. Here's something that's really, really bad. And then go to the opposite extreme. Because you know what we're going to end up happening there? We're going to go to... We're going to create our own, well, it won't be anything unique to us, but we'll go and make our own error. We can't be reactionary. We must, even though there might be abuses, we must think about what exegeting the scriptures, not coming to it, looking for proof text to go to the opposite extreme, if you know what I mean. Anyway, so the, I, I initially was listening to John Piper thinking, you know what, I'm gonna, this is going to be an unusual program. I'm going to be defending him. Uh, unfortunately, now I've got extra concerns, shall we say, about John Piper. I want to just say this. I think there's a, there is a danger in which we can fixate upon uh, people who are very popular, who have a big, massive influence, and we think that because you know, their books are in everybody's shelves and all this kind of stuff. Therefore, it makes us really, really angry. We get really, really hot and bothered if somebody quotes, I don't know, Tim Keller, John Piper here, or, or N.T. Wright, or what? Well, N.T. Wright's far worse, actually. But you know what I mean? Um, That we've we've got to not get obsessed with this either. I think there's a danger if we're constantly banging on about this, or anybody for that matter. Um, but let's go through, let's critique it, and hopefully it'll, uh, it'll be a blessing to some of you. I didn't actually... Let's pray together. So I'm gonna... Skip ahead here a little bit. So... Um, So the theme has been distinct from the world, and my title is New God, New Gospel, New Gladness, How is Christian Joy Distinct? I do regard this message not as uh, the capstone, but as the foundation of everything that's been said so far. So really this message should have been first but they put it last, and that's fine, because perhaps foundation should be remembered. So here's my main point. Under the banner of distinct from the world, my main point is the most basic, and I've thought about that word, that's an important word, the most basic, most essential distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian is not new decisions of the will. So um, he's defining here, just to set up the context, what makes, I suppose, in an experiential, in a lived-out sense, what is different at its most basic level between the believer and the unbeliever. What is different? Not new deeds of the hands, not new doctrines in the mind, but a new delight in the heart. That's my thesis. 
Say it again. The most basic distinction between the body of Christ and the world is not godly decisions, not good deeds, not genuine doctrines, but glad delights in the glory of God, the beauty of God, the excellence of God, the holy majesty of God, the marvelous mercies of God, the person of God as revealed in Jesus Christ supremely. The world is perfectly able to use its willpower to make decisions for Jesus. Um, okay, we'll just pause it there for a second and just make one or two comments. He's, he's all thesis thesis is really about feelings and emotions and delight and uh, happiness and joy. Before we get into it, is there joy associated with the Christian life? Yeah, there is. Absolutely. Look at various Psalms. But is there a, and it's a fruit of saving faith, but he's saying it's the most basic. And I mean, if you take it to its logical conclusion, there's a joyful person, but what if you have a Christian, and from a pastoral level, this is massively important, especially with the people who will struggle at times with their faith, maybe perhaps people struggle with assurance, um, a very real struggle for many Christians, uh, and they go through periods of depression, however you define that, Elijah, Jonah, even after uh, the repentance of Nineveh. There can be, and this is in the Psalms too, extreme lows for the Christian. I would even, like, this is the danger, right, of defining Christianity by the emotions. You make it kind of like a thrill ride, far better in the world. Oh, you've got your excitement. We got something far better. And it sounds really appealing. It sounds really... Because you don't want that cold orthodoxy. You don't want that dead lifeless religion where you're just going through the motions it's something where you're overjoyed so it is very very appealing and yes we should delight in god yes we should seek to be filled with the joy of the lord but there will come times for true believers and what will come up here is the, the definition of saving faith when they will be, they'll hit rock bottom. When they'll be like Job. When everything will be stripped from them. Their children, their livestock, everything gone. One after another. And then once that's taken, their health is taken. And they will feel like, I wish I wasn't even alive anymore. Look at the book of Job. Job's wife even says to him, 
Are you going to keep your integrity? Curse God and die. Are we going to turn around and go, well, you know, they weren't even Christians, were they? I know there's a difference between the experience of the, in a quantitative sense, between the New Testament believer and the Old Testament believer, but in a sense, there's, when we present the Christian faith like this, smile, you're going to be happy. What happens when one of your children dies? What happens when your spouse dies? What happens when your parents dies? And at best, I thought that this presentation by Piper was just plain sloppy and irresponsible, which is bad enough, by the way. But I think it, it even goes even further than this. And this what what really... I don't, I don't understand the appeal with John Piper. I really don't. This is central to John Piper's whole shtick. You know, Christian heathenism. The whole core of his doctrine, if you look at it, it seems to be joy and pleasure. And he'll say that pleasure's not our God, but if you listen to him long enough, it appears that he's seems to be making God a means to an end. Because the pleasure being sought is, it becomes the God in this system. Now, there's inconsistency in, in all of our systems of doctrine, of course, and all this kind of stuff. But on a pastoral level, on a one-to-one -one level, can you imagine the person who's sitting in that conference, perhaps even a minister, who is really struggling? Perhaps, maybe there's even a faction against him in his own congregation. And he feels low, and he's not quite there with joy. And I tell you, if you're going to be listening to this stuff, you think, well, am I even a Christian? Now, am I saying that the, the, the Christian life should be devoid of joy? No, there's something wrong with our Christian life when it's devoid of joy, of course. But our feelings are subjective. There's going to be times when we'll weep. When rivers of tears will flow down our eyes because we see man not keeping the law of God. It's in Psalm 119. There's, there's no comfort for that person going through that. So, off the bat, this is dangerous just by that. The Christian will go through all forms of emotion. You want to talk about emotion? You will, I think, and there's a sense in which, since I became a Christian, and this is very hard to quantify, very hard to explain, I've been saved, what, 11 years now, and I've reached my highest joys. But I've also reached my lowest lows because I care more. 
There's things I've wept over. So can we define saving faith by just joy and feelings? No. And it's the danger when we drift away from historical definitions already worked out by the church. Saving faith. For centuries, it's been challenged a lot in recent times, sadly, but knowledge, or the Latin term nocia, ascensus or ascent in English, and fiducia, trust. Very, very simply, we need knowledge of what we believe or else it's just mindless mysticism. So that's knowledge, nocia. A census, we need to believe these things are true. We can't trust in something that we don't believe is true. You know, um, Roman Catholicism believes in these first two, by the way. They'll say, okay, knowledge and ascent, uh uh-huh, 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 to the truths of the gospel. But we also need to trust these things. We also need to, do we trust Christ? We may know that this is true. We may know that the facts, we may go through... uh, study the scientific account of creation, all this kind of stuff. Saving faith is a a trust placed upon Christ. And it must have knowledge, assent, and we put our, our trust in Christ, Christ alone. Our Faith, is it going to be perfect? No, it's a weak faith. It'll be the size of a mustard seed at the beginning. Or, you know, there's going to be some people in the church with a greater amount of faith. But none of us will have a perfect faith. But even our Savior wept at times. To present the Christian faith in such a way that this is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is irresponsible at best. It's dangerous. It could cause somebody to despair. There's, look, I'll start playing it again in a second. I would urge these people, because what's going to happen to somebody who's struggling with their, who's going to go through times of struggling. Of course, there's going to be people like that in the church. There's always going to be people like that in the church who will struggle with their faith. Are you going to tell them, well, how, how do you measure joy? And if you kind of go, well, you need joy, well, you're going to start fo- focusing on that, and it's just a dangerous path to go down. Let's, let's continue playing this. Judas certainly did for three years all the while, by the way, he also said that I don't, by the way, a man's, it's kind of a by the way kind of point, man's not able to make a decision for Christ. He's, his, his will is enslaved. I, I, I think I know what he means. He means, okay, you know, uh-huh, uh-huh, to the truth of the gospel. If you want to put it like that, okay, fine. But man's will is enslaved. If you truly put your trust in Christ, then you're saved. And the only way you've done that 
and you know to choose Christ. You know, I'm reluctant to use that term because it's been so abused and all this kind of stuff. Is because you've been regenerated and born again in the Spirit of God. It, it's a fruit of regeneration. It comes out of regeneration. And no, the fallen sinner cannot do that. But that's a little by the way. Being a lover of money and a thief while willing to follow Jesus all day, every day. Secular philanthropy. Oh, uh, just a question there in the chat room, because um, I mightn't have been clear enough, and I want to just make sure that I'm clear enough in what I'm saying here, because it's such an important topic. So, um, one of uh, the people in the chat room said this, our trust in him to do what? to sa- Yeah, to save us from our sins, to, re- to redeem us, to place our confidence and our hope in him. Yes, save us, or save us from hell or trust um who he was um to trust him they're they kind of are synonymous if you trust in how much knowledge did the thief in the cross have the thief in the cross believed that he was lord Jesus said he, and it's been declared by the prophets, he came to save his people from their sins. If he believes that, then he, he's trusting in him. To, tr- to place our faith and our hope and our confidence in him, to turn from our sins and our place our confidence in Christ. Again, it's going to be weak. It's going to be... You, for example, somebody might have a very limited understanding of the gospel, but they must at least understand this. They must at least see that they're a sinner. They must at least see they're condemned before God. They must at least see that Christ is the sinless one who is the deliverer. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. See, to believe he is who he says he is, is to believe he is a deliverer and a redeemer. And they both go together. To to deliver somebody from their sins is to believe he says who he was. Like the title um, Jesus doesn't mean deliverer and Christos, anointed one. This is the anointed deliverer of the people of God, of, of Israel, of the commonwealth of Israel. Those people grafted in. By the blood of Christ. So they, they are synonymous. To believe he is Lord is to believe he is saver and deliverer. We can't break him up into pieces. If we don't believe he's Lord, he's not the person promised. He's not the seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent. Prophesied right back in Genesis 3.15. I hope that makes sense. Let's continue. Do good deeds. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned and have not love, I am nothing. The devil himself knows more right doctrine to be true than anyone in this room. But neither the devil 
nor secular. Quick uh, point on that. Yes, the devil does no more doctrine than us, and that is the distinction that, you know, the, the historical definition of saving faith versus just a mere mental ascent. The devil, the devil, by the way, has knowledge of the gospel. He also believes, he knows it's true. But he's never placed his trust in, in it. So that would be distinction, not feelings. Feeling, again, are subjective. And positive feelings will go with salvation. But if we look at our fruit and we look at our feelings, we can despair. We will despair unless we get puffed up and still be a genuine believer. We are to look to Christ. And how do we know we're actually trusting in Christ? Well, there will be necessarily fruit that evidences that we are a new creature in Christ Jesus, but we're, our eyes are to be on Christ. Our eyes are to be on Christ. The whole point when it talks about fruit and saving faith is for the person who's living in lawlessness, who says, I love Christ, but his life is a complete rejection of that. They are the ones to whom James is referring to when he says, um, faith without works is dead in James 2.17. Philanthropist, nor the whole unbelieving world does or can delight in the glory of God supremely. Now, when I say that my title is New God, New Devil, nor secular philanthropist, nor the whole unbelieving world does or can delight in the glory of God supremely. Um, that, that concerns me. Are we saved by delighting supremely in the glory of God? Now, a born-again believer, not to deny this, a born-again believer will delight in God. To a limited extent, this side of eternity, of course, and, and in eternity, in a, in a vastly fuller extent, but this side of eternity, we will delight in God, but delight in God supremely? To what extent do we need to delight in God in order to be saved? Anybody say, well, you know, this is Piper. Well, he's not really. I've heard people have got great respect for these people and say, well, he's not really, he's not really a theologian. I remember a brother in the Lord who I have massive respect for said that to me years ago. He's not really a theologian. Piper, if you look at his background, he studied in, was it the University of Munich, if I'm not mistaken? He has got a long academic background. Now, by the way, even if this was just someone starting off, if this was a, I'm a student pre preacher, then this would be something you should be reprimanded over. 
this is corrupting and endangering the core of the gospel. Now, I'm, for the intents and purposes of critiquing this video, I'm trying to leave that whole stuff aside about the stuff in the Shriner book from 2015 and his comments from two years ago that I critiqued on an earlier program. I'm trying to keep them separate. You might think, why? Well, I suppose there's so many things you could draw in, but just to try to keep this to a, as, a, as a standalone message. But are we saying we're, we're saved now by delighting supremely? That's dangerous. I don't, sadly, delight supremely in the way I should before God. I delight in God. But our, all of our faith, brethren, is weak, failing. We sin in thought, in word, in deed. And if this is sloppy, then it can make you think that I am saved. What, what happens when I don't delight supremely in God? Am I still a Christian? Now, when I say that my title is New God, New Gospel, New Gladness, I mean, everyone has, everyone has a God, right? And you need a new God. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So my definition of your God, anybody's God, is the supreme treasure of your heart's delight. That's who your God is, the supreme treasure of your heart's Delight. Now think about this. Delight or happiness or pleasure in the heart is nobody's God. The um, this is something that's often misunderstood by a lot, and I think it's largely to do with dispensationalism and all that. Um, to love God is a summary of the first table of the law. Um, you shall have no gods before Almighty God. You shall not make any images. Uh, the second commandment, the third commandment, you shall not blaspheme. And the fourth commandment is uh, the Sabbath day to keep one day in seven holy. Their works. Love for God is seen in works. Love for God is a fruit of saving faith. Even back in Exodus Chapter 20, verse 6. It says of God, in his covenant mercies, it says, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. I'm just going to dig it up there. This is right in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6. I remember seeing this years ago, and it astonished me. Um, as a former dispensationalist. Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment keeping is synonymous with loving God. We keep 
God's commandments, imperfectly, of course, out of a love for God. If we don't, if we turn from God, then it shows a hatred for God. The danger is, with any of Piper's stuff, is when you take stuff that is really the fruit of saving faith and make it the root, the core of saving faith. And what eventually happens is, Christ is pushed out. Because that thing, whatever it is, is the thing that will be trusted upon. Because it's the way our nature is. Saving faith... We're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That faith is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. It is a gracious gift of God. That's why we can say we're saved by grace. Romans 4, can't remember the verse off the top of my head. We're saved by faith apart from the works of the law. What makes faith different apart from the works of the law? It is a saving grace. It is something that has been wrought in the heart, regeneration. It is a work of God. I'm using the term God. To talk that way, Your pleasure is your God. To talk that way is a category confusion. Delight and happiness and pleasure are experiential echoes in the heart of what we treasure. Delight and happiness and pleasure are not our God. They are our worship of our God. Pleasure is not our God. Our God is what we take most pleasure in. Um, Again, it's getting the order all mixed up. Uh, We worship God, and sometimes the feeling isn't there. We worship God, and we should do it in the way revealed by God. But is that saying, well, it's only really worship as defined by God, if we delight in it and we think it's fantastic. How about those blasphemers? Again, this is the the messiness and the sloppiness of a lot of John Piper's presentations. What if it's, you know, the the strange group of charismatics, I think his name is John Crowder, and they believe in, like, getting high off the Holy Spirit. It's it's completely blasphemous. Uh, Brian Head Welsh, that guy apparently was converted from corn years ago. A testimony that I watched years and years ago over and over again. Well, he seems to get lots of pleasure off what he says is God. Because according to John Piper's hedonism, and he's he's tweaked and changed question one of the shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Westminster Confession of Faith says we are to what was off the top of my head? Oh, glorify 
to ser- to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Oh, I went out of my head there for the first time in my life. Um, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Piper makes it to glorify God by enjoying him forever. So in order to glorify God, it has to be out of the enjoyment. Now, yes, we should enjoy God. Absolutely. That's why we... But the supreme glory of God in Christian heathenism is through our enjoyment. So it must be enjoyable for us. Rather than, no, no, we obey God. We go out and evangelize, and the, that joy may come later. Do you see what I'm saying? It's kind of going, we're being led. If you go with Piper's explanation, you're going to be led around by your feelings. You're going to be led by your fallen, sinful heart. Oh, everybody has a God. It's what makes us most glad. And my point is, Christians have a new God. Namely, God. Our highest treasure and deepest pleasure. And when I say in my title, new God, new gospel, new gladness, I mean everybody has a gospel. Everyone believes a good news, whether it comes true or not. And if pressed... I'd question that a little bit. Um, As a former nihilist, I didn't believe there was a good news. This is um, it's a very optimistic view. Yeah, there are plenty of people who have their own gospel, and they're going to say it by works. But some people are just being out in a rebellion against God, and they know it. Of course, everyone outside of Christ hates Christ. Yes, completely granted. But as a... I would question, I need to maybe think that went over a little bit more, but as a former nihilist for a couple of years i believed you know it was was nothing it was very hopeless no there was good no good news in that said you might as well just be king for a day than fool for a lifetime Ah, i was a really messed up guy before i got saved um and there's plenty of people who openly and knowingly Maybe, maybe I suppose if you could apply it and try to be, maybe you could say that my gospel was that we're going to reign in hell. And I might, that might sound really, really weird to people, but I am among other people who are out there who used to listen to really, really messed up stuff. We believe this kind of stuff. It's true. And what changed my mind? Okay. The Lord, obviously, the Holy Spirit changed my heart, gave me a heart of flesh that I was, I I saw the evil of my, I saw the kindness of God. I saw that God was good. This is, um, be very careful with a system that seems, it sounds great and sounds very neat, but is it based off of scripture? Everyone has something they believe would be the best news. 
And that would be, the best news would be, something is going to happen in my life that will make me the most happy. That would be my gospel. Something's going to happen to me, and it will make me most happy. And my point is, Christians have a new gospel, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, reigning forever. This is our new gospel precisely because it brings us to what will make us most happy. That's what the gospel is, good news. Because it makes us most happy. This gospel, when you say it like that, no, no, it brings us to Christ. He is the end. Now, out of that, of course, because he is glorious and beautiful in holiness, it will be a joy to behold. But at the same time, we don't go to Christ to be happy. We go to Christ for Christ. You go to what you love, I suppose you could put it like that. And just statements like that, you make God a means to an end. Why is this guy invited to reform conferences? Why? Why are we reading? Why are we reading this guy? Do we care about reformed theology as much as we state we do? Or is it just merely head knowledge and it doesn't affect the rest of our lives? Because you know what? Sadly, that's what happened. That's what that's where lots of reformed theology is today. It becomes such a dead orthodoxy at times. We can become our own caricature that it creates a vacuum for this kind of pietism. This isn't the solution, by the way. What we believe in our, our head and love about the scriptures and our truth should shape our affections and our heart. And out of that, how head, heart, and hands, as the Puritans would talk about, it creates a vacuum for this kind of stuff. Because it brings us to the biggest, longest happiness. Listen to First Peter 3. It makes God sound like a drug. It makes God sound like a drug, a means to an end. 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Yes, exactly, to God, to God. That is the goal. It's not even about making us happy. 
It's about bringing us to God. Now, because Christ is wonderful and because he is glorious, and it's wonderful to be in union with even this side of eternity and will experience more of him to a much greater extent in the world to come where there'll be no suffering, only joy. But it is because of him. We shouldn't, there's a sense in which we shouldn't even want to go to heaven because it's just going to make us happy. We want to go to heaven because Christ is there. And of course we'll be happy. But because Christ is there. It's the point of the gospel, to bring us to God. And what does the Bible say we find when we get there? Like boredom? Misery forever in his presence? That's blasphemy. Self-denial in heaven is blasphemy. It says, in whose presence is fullness of joy. It seems like for Piper, I don't want to stop every five seconds, but it seems like for Piper to deny, to not, I mean, who's making, who is, I'd love to know who's making the argument that you're going to be bored in the presence of the Lord. I don't even know antinomians who make that argument. But we, we say that God is glorious and it is wonderful to behold and to be with him because he is good rather than, you know, to say you won't be happy with him is blasphemous. Again, the, the focus constantly is on the subjective. With, at best, at best. At whose right hand are pleasures forever more. That's why he died. We rejoice. He died to reconcile us to himself, not to make us happy. God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have the reconciliation. We rejoice in God, through whom we have the reconciliation, or Jesus, through whom we have the reconciliation. If the gospel only brought us forgiveness, If the gospel only brought us justification, if the gospel only brought us propitiation, if the gospel only brought us escape from hell, eternal life, health and wealth, and did not bring us into the enjoyment of the person of God, it would not be good news. Out of Cameron. To be brought into union with Christ and because he is wonderful and because our hearts have been changed there is no way that there will not be pleasures in Christ absolutely and joy and peace that passes all understanding but because he is wonderful but because he is glorious, not the pleasures are wonderful that we get from him. It is, the order has been reversed. This is Christian hedonism. And it's dangerous. It is dangerous. Even from a, like, just purely on a day-to-day pastoral point of view, if you purely looked at this, if you weren't getting your spiritual jollies every single time you went to church, you would be questioning your salvation left, right, and center. 
This kind of stuff won't bring you joy. If you focus on your joy, you're going to be miserable. Do you know that? If you focus on your joy and how you feel, what are you really doing? You're, you're focusing on yourself. You're not focusing on Christ. Songs, we sing about those glories. It would not be good news because every one of those magnificent achievements of Christ are to get us to God. They're getting obstacles out of the way so we can get to God, which is the end of the quest. And it's not boredom when you get there. That would be blasphemy. It's joy when you get there. And so the gospel of Jesus, our new gospel, is a new gladness. So, the most basic, the most essential thing that distinguishes a Christian from the non-Christian is that we have a new gladness in a new God through a new gospel. That's my message, and I could just go home. However, let me see if I can show you how unbelievably controversial this is so that it lands on you with some weight and you'll stop thinking about joy as icing on the cake or peripheral or anything other at the essence of the universe and the essence of God and the essence of salvation. Do you see how dangerous this all is? Um, it's, it's not. It is the very essence. It is the very core Christianity. So if you go through periods of time when, say in Psalm 6, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is great, greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you in the grave. Who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench with ca my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. Grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. You might say that there might come periods of time where there'll be great grief. Oh, but you'll be joyful in your grief. When you come out of it, and there will be, Go through the Psalms. We, th we sing through, in our denomination, we believe that the Psalter should be sung through in worship. And the Psalter is a wonderful blessing. 
It's not like the hymns of men, which will say, generally will focus on the subjective, will focus on, hey, how great, how wonderful, it's great, I, I'm delivered, yay, yay, yay. Okay, now here's the thing. There's a sense of truth in that. Praise God, we've been delivered from a pit of fear. As it says in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay. There was a joy there. But there's also other experiences in the Christian life. Absolute abject misery at times. There's nothing comforting about the person who just says, well, you know what? It, here is the, the, the essential thing, joy. What if you have, what if you're weeping at the end, end of your bed? What if someone is dying in your home? How is this going to be comforting to you? And you're weeping out to the Lord. Oh, well, where you get your supreme pleasure? Well, I can guarantee, okay, you, you, you're looking to the Lord. You're looking to the Lord. You're crying out to him. But I can guarantee you, those are not going to be the sweetest moments. Now, if there's an answer to prayer, in those moments where you weep, Lord, perhaps you're you're praying about your 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 baby who's been told you've been told that the baby probably won't survive and then the baby does. Or your your wife lives through life-saving operation of some description. But when you're going through anxiety and worry, should we worry? Everything's in the Lord's hands, but we're not robots. And even Christ himself wept. And there's going to be grief. And there's going to be horror at times. I don't know. I haven't read enough of John Piper. I don't know how that, how that reality can fit in to that. Whether the man preaches the gospel or not, how is that going to affect people? How is it going to affect the people in his church? How is it going to affect the people reading in his congregation? It's utterly, utterly horrendous. To help you feel some of the weight that this carries, let me venture to say that in the last 200 years, Christianity in America has been distorted or, to use a more serious word, ravaged. Christianity in America has been ravaged by the dominant teaching that decisions for God are more basic in defining a Christian than delight in God. The upshot of the dominant... What defines a Christian, or I suppose you could say, what is the difference between a Christian and an unbeliever is, again, very simply, saving faith in Jesus Christ. But Piper's taken feelings and stuffed it in there 
rather than it being you're, you're hoping and you're trusting Christ, that he is who he says he is. And your confidence and your hope is in him. And if you are trusting in him, yes, there will be fruit. Not perfect fruit. Let's never think that it's going to be perfect fruit. But there will be fruit. But you know what? The greatest sign that you're truly born again, your eyes are upon Christ. You're looking to Christ. You're rejoicing in Christ. How do you know that you're really looking to Christ and it's not just the Christ of your own imagination or whatever else? Fruit follows. You love Christ. You love His law. Not the, not the feeling you get from it. Of course, yes, that is a byproduct and that is wonderful. And that joy you get when you trust in Christ, when you come through those difficult times, is so comforting. I don't want to underestimate. I don't want to put down the joy that we have on this earth, this side of eternity, and that comfort that the Holy Spirit gives us. I don't want to diminish that. I don't want to go to the opposite extreme. There, Of course, there must be joy. We must rejoice and delight in God, of course, and delight in the law of God. But not make that delight what defines the Christian, the the core of who he is. Of this viewpoint, dominance of this viewpoint, right across the Christian spectrum from Roman Catholic to fundamentalist Protestant, the dominance of this viewpoint is the emergence of thousands upon thousands of professing Christians who have made decisions about God, join churches, have no new gladness in God, and are not Christians. The F- he's talking about fruit, and he's absolutely right here. There are lots of people who have... I wouldn't even say made decisions. There's a sense in which they just walked an aisle, maybe signed a card, whatever the case may be. Maybe went, "Uh uh-huh. But what happens there, they're trusting not in Christ. Their eyes have not gone to Christ. Their eyes have gone to an action that they've made. They walked an aisle or they're trusting in the, the minister who told them, don't worry, you're okay, or whatever else. Their eyes are not upon Christ. And there can be. Look, when we walk through a Christian life, sometimes we may struggle with assurance. We may have grief and we may be afraid and worried. But the Lord uses that at times. Here's the thing. If we got perfect assurance right after we got saved, perhaps we would start trusting ourselves. You know what? I'm okay. I'm saved. I don't need to. I don't have to grow anymore. Um, but there's a sense in which, now the Lord will sometimes take some sin from us. Show, we are different. There's something different 
one of the, uh, the, the first thing that the Lord took from me was the thirst to get drunk. But he didn't take everything from me. There was other areas I really struggled in for quite a while. So the Lord gave me straight away, I just didn't like being drunk anymore. It's not the same for everybody. But that comforted me, delivered me from that, but those other things I struggled with. And I it drove me to spend more and more time with the Lord and not say, you know what? 15 minutes alone with my Bible in the morning, that's, that's enough. Or, you know, we do the bare minimum or whatever else it is. The Lord will sometimes take that comfort and that sweet joy away from us at times. Will we trust in him? Will we follow him? Will we go with him when we're in the, the valley of tears, the valley of death, when we're going through utter despair? And then he gives us victory, and then he gives us comfort, and then he gives us joy. Go, you want to see a realistic picture of the Christian life? The book of Psalms. The book of Psalms. And there will be times where there is joy, and the sweetest joy we'll ever experience this side of eternity, anywhere, ever. Contentment and peace in the Lord. Absolutely. That is the fruit it's not always going to be there. Some people have far more of it and have an abundance of it. And some people really struggle. Some people struggle to sleep. You know, there are people who have lost loved ones and, and will for maybe even years afterwards will struggle at night to even sleep. Are we going to say to them, you know what? Get over it, young fella. It is so irresponsible what he's doing here. Of this dominant viewpoint in American evangelicalism, to define saving faith apart from spiritual affections is biblically futile. To define saving faith apart from Feelings. That's a positive word. I'm using it synonymously with affections or emotions. To define saving faith apart from feelings slash emotions slash affections of glad dependence, thankful trust, fervent admiration, Pleased submission, contented resting, thrilled treasuring, eager reverence, heartfelt adoration is futile. Which other feelings should we put in there? Uh, How about grieving? Notice how he puts in all the positives? All the positives? Well, how about grief, sorrow, tears, over the sins of your own or the sins of the nation or grief over your sin. Why not put that in there along with saving faith as well? 
It's all the positive things. Glad. This is why it's so popular. Oh, oh, joy. Who wouldn't want joy? I don't notice anything about the... The negative, you know, if you want to go negative. If we love Christ, we will naturally hate our sin. To define saving faith according to feelings is futile. To run away from a perfectly good definition that has been working in the church for centuries, knowledge, assent, and trust is unnecessary, confusing to many. How about those days, you know, for the person who's struggling and truly has saving faith and is struggling and they don't feel, they may be thankful, but they don't feel thankful. There's times in our Christian walk, brethren, we may have progressed, but we're depressed. Okay? We think, oh, we may even think, how, how am I even a Christian? I'm struggling with this. And then you may get to the point where you're going, you remembered years ago what you once struggled with. This is why it is silly. to focus on feelings, even as a, a fruit. But he hasn't made it a fruit. He's made it a core. You're saved by your experience. You're saved by your joy. Take it to its logical conclusion. You're no longer saved by Christ alone. You're saved by your joy. You're saved by your feelings. It's not by faith alone, it's faith plus joy. I don't really think he's purposely teaching that, by the way. I don't think he's purposely teaching that. But that's where it could go. That's where it could be understood. And I thought when I heard the, the initial clip, you know, that'll give the context of the, of the clip. That, okay, well, uh, he's explained it poorly, and um, he hasn't made it the core, it's more the fruit, and and of course there will be joy, but our, our, our feelings are subjective. To define saving faith based upon our feelings, it's irresponsible, it's not helpful. The Bible doesn't do it. The Bible describes various emotions we will go through as Christians, but they're not all positive. I think I'll leave it there. Um, any, if you have any questions, I think I've covered pretty much all of it. He kind of goes on and um, he does an exposition on a psalm after that, which deals with joy, of course. And um, again, we're not denying there. Look, I would even say, right, if your Christian walk doesn't have a degree of joy in the Lord, I'd be concerned. I mean, again, I, and, I, and it's perfectly acceptable application when a minister says, where is your joy? Where is your hope? Where is your confidence? 
but there's going to come times where we're not going to have that feeling. There's going to come times we may be trusting, but we don't feel like we're trusting. Our feelings, we can become numb to our feelings. It's a bit like, okay, you know, the, you know, sometimes we can, we love our, our wives, us husbands, but we don't realize how much until they're away for a while. We, you know, sadly, we take that for granted at times. You know, that, that feeling. But then when they're away, it's like that excitement when they're coming home. So that's what I'm saying. Fee you still love them, but you know, that, that, I suppose that's, it's, it's a hard thing to describe. It's a hard thing to define. But go through the book of Psalms. Don't listen to this guy. How many of us have not struggled at various times in some part of our Christian walk and have been in need of encouragement? This doesn't offer any. Um, doesn't seem to be one person says in the chat room, why not simply explain the text and keep close to it? That would be wonderful. Um, that would be wonderful, but, um, sadly, what has happened a lot, what happens a lot is we have our own ideas and we go to the scriptures to go, aha, you see? You have your own ideas and then you find a text that just says what you you think it says. Anyway, uh, hopefully we'll be back Tuesday. If you've got any suggestions for programs, I'm not going to be able to do a whole ton, but um, get a films at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your continued support and those who've sent an email and everything else. Um really really appreciate it please keep us in your prayers this is from paul flynn may god bless you all